is an Odyssey original. This is the War in Ukraine Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. Today, a lot of information and misinformation about what's going on in Ukraine. President Biden has called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Could that make diplomacy more difficult? And we speak with a doctor in Ukraine who says hospitals are being overwhelmed. We start with the information war. Tom Amenta, former U.S. Army Ranger, special ops veteran. We're getting a lot of conflicting reports about what's going on uh, in Ukraine. How do we know what's true and what isn't? Well, I mean, the short answer is you're never quite 100 percent. I think that one of the things that I always point out, especially when it comes to conflict and crisis PR managers will tell you the same thing, is that usually in the first 24 hours of any major event or crisis, usually they say about half the things that you're being told or can be reported are wrong. It's just... And there's generally speaking, not bad actors to it. It's just that things are coming so quickly. Things are changing so fast. People are trying to get on top of and get a handle of things. And you certainly, that type of thing is only magnified in a war zone. What I think is really interesting about this conflict is that how very clearly both sides are incented right now to spread information that helps them. Are, we, I was just, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, are things even more complicated now with social media because you can just put anything out there and it can spread as fast as, as it can all over the place. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. And that's one of the, the new wrinkles and the new facets. This is truly uh, the first, what I would call modern war fought with social media as a presence. And what I mean by that is that Afghanistan and Iraq were always considered by, you know, military strategists, low intensity conflicts. It wasn't sort of that nation on nation state, we were fighting a counterterrorism campaign, which is really fighting against an idea. Right now, you have two two nations that are both not only trying to rally their troops that are fighting and rally the support of their people, but rally the support of the world. And so these the ability to put out information and, and try and control that narrative can try and control that truth literally at the speed of light through, like you said, social media is a new facet to warfare. And there really hasn't been a precedent for this sort of two nation fight up until now. So other than uh, having a, a healthy sense of skepticism, are there little, I don't know, clues that maybe you look for when you read about different reports uh, that raise the, the flag in your mind? Yes, absolutely. One of the first things that I, I like to look for, especially having been, you know, a, a former soldier and things like that, is look at what the look at what the videos are that are coming out and how they're edited. Right. Um, you know, you, you can make you can make a, a battle look really good if you start the ambush and blow up three tanks, but then the tanks figure out where you are, you know, um, and just sort of, you know, disrupt your ambush and really disrupt the things that you're doing. So how are things edited and where is something that I look for? Um, the other thing is just trying to piece together things from different news sources when possible for all of the talk in the Western world about fake news. Um, and we've mentioned earlier sort of social media's ability to spread some, you know, some, some lies or some falsehoods. Generally speaking, most major news outlets, whatever their political bias is one way or the other, they generally are trying to get to um, what's really going on. So as you start seeing something of the consistent picture, when you look at just because of the majors, if MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News are all more or less reporting 80% of the same thing, um, you know, or if you have sort of like local things, you know, the BBC in this case, or, you know, Agency Free Press or Reuters, and the Associated Presses, they're all sort of covering this. I try and look for what the consistent threads coming out of those are, rather than focusing on some of the minutiae, just get to the broad picture. Because especially in this conflict, the final thing is, is that 
we're seeing reporters being targeted right now by the Russians. Um, you know, Fox News has had two reporters killed. Uh, the, there was a documentary filmmaker who brought an old New York Times press credential. The Times has since said that he was not working for them, but, you know, to, to have access. And he was, you know, he was unfortunately killed. So it's trying to find those macro ideas across uh, sources because we have limited information and limited people on the ground uh, in order to cover this. So those are the things I look for the most. Should you also be careful what any official is saying, even if you know your allegiances kind of lie with them? Because I think an example of this maybe was when the power plant was was being shot at and, and the Ukrainian mm-hmm. officials came out and said, this could be 10 times worse than Chernobyl. And, and not long after that, a whole bunch of nuclear scientists said, OK, no, everybody calm down. Not a great idea to shoot at a power plant, um, but also it's not going to just explode. So that's the very 24-hour, first 20 minutes things that, that, you, were, mm-hmm. that you were talking about. No, absolutely. And that's the thing is, like, there always has to be discernment because everybody – no one's neutral in this. Everybody has an angle. And so, uh, you know, and I'm, I'll am i be really clear. I'm, I'm very pro-Ukraine in this. I, you know, from some of the Russian propaganda that I've seen, I would – you know, I've called that. But I've also seen – um, through friends of mine and connections in the military of what the the Ukrainian military is saying as far as casualties. And they're reporting 14,000, you know, Russian soldiers killed. Whereas you look at, you know, things from sort of the Western press or other organizations, they've got it anywhere from about six to 10,000, you know, that have been, you know, that up to have been killed, which is a significant number. And I'm in no way, shape or form trying to cheapen that loss of human life. But it does show one side trying to show a much bigger win, if you will, at almost 10% of the fighting force that has been, you know, deployed into that as opposed to something that could be closer to 5%, which is a pretty significant delta. Tom Momenta, former U.S. Army Ranger, Special Ops veteran, co-author of the book, The 20-Year War, documents a U.S. war on terror. Tom, thanks. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has called Vladimir Putin a war criminal one day after President Biden did the same thing, but calling someone a war criminal does not make them a war criminal. There's actually a whole process to determine who's a war criminal, how they should be punished. David Crane, heads of the Global Accountability Network, has worked on war crimes for decades. David, does the president calling Putin a criminal, a war criminal, carry any real weight? You know, what uh, President Biden did was uh, throw the uh, political gauntlet down. Uh, he looked at it from a more of a layman point of view of just a war, war criminal. Uh, obviously, uh, it remains to be seen uh, whether he's a war criminal in a court of law, and that is something that we do. But uh, you know, what he's doing is he's ramping up the pressure, uh, letting, focusing the world on the fact that what he's doing in Ukraine is horrific, and uh, he's uh, he's did that for uh, on purpose. Uh, he has formally said that I I believe he's a war criminal. So it's it's not something that will complicate things. I mean, how more complicated could it be, guys? So the bottom line is, is that uh, it was for he was just uh, sending him notice that uh, he supports any kind of efforts like uh, what we're doing in uh, investigating and then uh, potentially uh, prosecuting him for uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity and acts of aggression. Well, uh, here's one way, though, I I suppose it could get more complicated down the road. Uh, At some point, uh, hopefully this war will end. But Mr. Putin may be around for quite some time thereafter. How does a president of the United States, whether it's Mr. Biden or maybe a future president, if Putin is still there, how, from an optics point of view, do you deal with somebody in another country, head of state, who has already been deemed by the president of the United States, no less, to be a war criminal? 
Well, you know, it's uh, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, this type of business that uh, that I'm in, uh, modern international criminal law, where we do, in fact, investigate, indict, and prosecute heads of state and their and their henchmen. You know, there's uh, politics is all part of this. But the bottom line is, is when you commit an international crime before the world, uh, we just can't walk away for political reasons uh, and say, well, you know, it's uh, you know, it's it's proverbial justice before peace or peace before justice. The bottom line is he's uh, tearing Ukraine apart. And so the bottom line is he is going to uh, be investigated uh, for war crimes. And uh, frankly, I. I, I believe that within the year, he will be an indicted war criminal for the rest of his life. Yeah. Take us through that process and how it actually works and, and what are the, you know, the odds that this will actually go all the way with him. How, how do you even get that to happen when somebody's a president of a country? Well, that's great. You know, and, and again, all good questions. And it's important for your listeners to understand, you know, modern international criminal law, which I'm one of the founders, began about 25 years ago. And we've developed uh, the experience, the jurisprudence, the law, uh, as well as rules of procedure and evidence to, in fact, uh, investigate, uh, indict and prosecute uh, sitting heads of state for uh, for acts that they uh, they do uh, while in office. And so we do have uh, now that four corners uh, experience to do that. So how how does that happen? Well, one is you have to have a court of uh, an appropriate jurisdiction. Uh, the International Criminal Court has opened what we call a preliminary investigation related to war crimes and crimes against humanity, and that is ongoing. Also, the United Nations is uh, coming together. There was over 141 nations uh, around the world condemning what Putin has done. And so the next logical step is to uh, to agree to uh, uh, support a court who would prosecute him for uh, for the crime of aggression. And that's what we're working on now quietly in the background uh, to do that. Once, once that happens, or if the International Criminal Court uh, moves forward under their statute, uh, they can issue an indictment for war crimes and crimes against humanity at the appropriate time. Uh, likewise, this potential new uh, UN uh, court that would be looking at aggression would be doing the same uh, kind of thing. So it's all done under law fairly openly and ethically. Uh, and uh, we, like I said, uh, we're pretty good at this now, and uh, we've been doing it for 25 years. So, uh, you know, we uh, we just have to have the authority, uh, the appropriate legal authority from the United Nations, uh, green light, so to speak, and we uh, we can make that happen. If, let's say, uh, he is indicted, uh, Putin, and is tried, uh, presumably he won't be at the trial, but he's tried and then convicted, what happens to him, if anything? Well, the bottom line is we won't uh, uh, we don't have trials in absentia at the international level. Uh, we would uh, uh, we would uh, investigate. Uh, and if there was appropriate uh, case against him, we would indict him uh, for the crime of aggression. And the International Criminal Court would indict him for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And what happens then is that indictment stands. He, uh, we wouldn't move any uh, any far forward until he's actually handed over to us in person. That may take uh, five, six, seven, eight years. It's important that uh, your listeners understand that uh, uh, once you are uh, you commit international crimes, there's no statute of limitations. So, uh, you, know, you know, until he dies, he will be uh, potentially an indicted war criminal uh, to be handed over uh, when there's an, a political moment by which that could happen. But we don't try people in absentia. So he's indicted. That indictment stands and he'll stand for the rest of his life. So that was the answer, though, there at the end. You wait for that political moment if it happens. That's the only way to get right. him. Well, you know, it is. You know, at the bottom line is, is, you know, modern international criminal law is, 
is the bright red thread is, is politics. There are, you know, a tribunal or a court, uh, which I founded back in West Africa back in 2002, is a creature of political events. It's political, a political compromise, uh, a political situation such as a conflict. So, you know, politics with a small p is in the DNA, of course. So you have to be, you know, have to be ready to go, but you also have to understand that sometimes this takes a little time. You know, we're still prosecuting camp guards out of Auschwitz. So, uh, you know, uh, we, we'll, we'll make this happen. David Crane heads the Global Accountability Network. David, thanks. Coming right up after a short break, a doctor in western Ukraine says hospitals have had to clear out many patients to treat people wounded in the war. A doctor in western Ukraine says that even though there hasn't been much destruction where he is, his hospital is still overwhelmed. They've had to clear out patients and even turn COVID patients away in order to treat the wounded. Dr. Roman Fischuk says there have been bomb attacks nearby. He's worried things get even worse at uh, his hospital. Doctor, tell us what you're seeing. Well, hello, Mike. Hello, Charles. Uh, Thank you for the invitation to talk to you today. Well, uh, all operations everywhere in the con- in the country have been affected and you know it's, we thought that we were, were just recovering from covid and everything related to it and uh, russia attacked ukraine and uh, unfortunately there is no safe place in ukraine right now because of all the military troops surrounding the country from russia from belarus every part of ukraine is a target so unfortunately there is no safe place in the country some of the Cities are being targeted much more than the others, but even my hometown, Ivano-Frankivsk, our airport has already been bombed three times. Uh, Fortunately, there were no injured people so far, but as you might have heard, a a military base 16 miles from Polish border was uh, heavily bombarded and uh, almost 40 people died and almost 200 people were injured. So uh, right now the the country is living going through wartime so everything functioning according to the military times. So yeah everything is focused on supporting the army, the armed forces, the volunteers, uh, medical staff and uh, yeah so we're trying to do everything we can in order to finish this war as soon as possible. And what is that like in terms of the actual hospital? Have you moved people out who, you know, can be moved in case, like we said, some of the worst happens? We mentioned one of your concerns is at any point, you know, there could be bombs falling or there could be movement and you could get that that sudden rush of people with injuries. Yeah, from the first day of war, all the patients who were at the hospital who can be treated at home or who have chronic conditions they were discharged from the hospital and only critical patients, patients who need uh, intensive care, they are they remained at the hospital. But even in the first days, they were still in their usual departments. But because of very frequent uh, air raid sirens, they had to be moved uh, downstairs and upstairs. So in a few days, uh, a conference room and the physiotherapy department were re- refitted for intensive care patients. So now they are... Uh, in the basement all the time in the shelter and uh, all planned surgeries had to be cancelled all consultations all outpatients had to be cancelled and uh, the hospital is pretty much on standby to uh, provide health to uh, healthcare services to the wounded and of course uh, this war uh, is coming at a time and you'd mentioned in passing covid when 
the pandemic is certainly not at all over. How is the war impacting the ability of your hospital and the community in which you are now to deal with with those who get COVID, some of whom I'm imagining are going to be fairly ill, if not all? Well, absolutely. I mean, patients who have severe COVID, they are admitted to the hospital. Uh, who need oxygen, who need specific treatment, treatment, who need infusions, because this cannot be provided at home or, uh, you know, with family doctors. So those who need the care, they do get it. But again, uh, the hospital access was quite restricted, both for visitors and patients themselves. I mean, this, uh, the, our clinical trial participants were really affected by this. So now we cannot do any visits for them at the hospital. So we had to come up with some backup plans. And unfortunately, the companies we work with, and these are large international companies, we consider, you know, they failed their function. They have not provided us with any backup plans, you know, risk mitigation plans, although we asked them for it. And after 2014, which was pretty much a small version of what is happening right now, I thought they would have come up with something like that, you know, for plan of actions in case this happens or this happens, but we didn't see that. When it comes to COVID and how many people are on the move, how many refugees, and we've reported on this and, and how the, the rush from among some to get out of the country, do you worry about spread in those kind of situations? And look, people have to go because they've got to go, but everyone is cramped together on trains or sometimes in, in bomb shelters. And I, I don't know what mask wearing is like there, but there could be some more spread. And this is just another effect that we're seeing here. Well, fortunately, by this time, uh, quite a lot of pe people were vaccinated. And even for those who were vaccinated, even if they get COVID, usually it's a, you know, they have it in a mild or moderate form. But trust me, if your country is bombed, you know, your your chances of dying from a bombardment is much higher than from COVID. So, you know, first things first. And right now, the war is the first priority for everyone. Severe cases, they do get treatment at the hospitals, uh, but the rest, it's pretty much, you know, there is this dark, you know, black humor going on that the war in Ukraine cured COVID globally because not, <laughs> so, not so much more people are worry. talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm curious, what, what is your, your particular specialty, doctor? I'm an ENT doctor, ear, ENT. ear nose, and throat. Okay, uh, and mm -hmm. and uh, how many, roughly how many doctors are attached to the hospital that you're, you work in? Well, uh, the general uh, staff is about 800 people out of these 800, 200 are doctors. Okay. So the, the, the question I'm getting at is, uh, do, are you confident that you and the other doctors there are, are equipped, I don't mean equipment, but just in, in your medical knowledge and training, if needed, to deal with the kinds of casualties you can get in, in a war situation, because I, I'm guessing that you haven't had, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe you haven't had a lot of experience in that particular area. Uh, that is a great question, to be honest. I mean, uh, we're lucky to have a good hospital administration, because in the past eight years, we had regular trainings by professional organizations who came and uh, did these uh, military trainings in case of, you know, different accidents that could happen, including uh, war accidents. But again, these were, they were done on a yearly basis or once in two years. And our hospital sent, uh, on a regular basis, medical staff to the east of Ukraine to provide medical care. 
So I think our hospital and some of our staff are more equipped and trained to deliver medical services to the wounded than the rest of the hospitals. But again, in general, I would say that, yes, we're not very equipped and well prepared for this. And for some of your colleagues in other areas, what are things like for them if if you've been able to hear about that? Uh, you know, people had to flee the places where they were working. You know, Kharkiv, I have a lot of friends from Kharkiv. They are all around the world right now. Some of them moved to Western Ukraine. Some of them stayed in Kyiv. Some of them moved to Poland. Uh, so, you know, it's a, right now, it's for most of the people, it's about surviving. What's the thing, what is the, the thing that, as a, a physician, you worry about the most now? Uh, well, I, I work on this Ministry of Health hotline that we take calls from people from different parts of the world. And what is uh, the biggest fear for, for me is that there are so many hidden victims of the war. You know, we have the casualties. People die. Civilians die. And, you know, this is something we can see. But there are so many people who need social care, who need medical care at home. And now they're left alone. They are pretty much abandoned because people who took care of them moved. Some of the people who live alone, they have no one to look after them. So I fear for these people who are pretty much alone and they don't know where to get care and how to get it. Imagine also just worries about some of these cities where the supplies haven't been able to get in. And that was one of the initial things, you know, you need food, water, and then so many people need medicine. And as the humanitarian groups try their best, you know, some of these areas that they just can't get it in, or maybe it's just now starting to trickle. But for a week or two, you know, people didn't have their medication that maybe they needed to take every day. That's a disaster. I mean, it's an inhumane attitude towards people. I mean, how can you target pregnant women, maternity wards, children's hospitals. It's, you know, it's something, it's just, we don't have words for it here. It's just, we can't explain it. And and what about uh, your own family? Uh, how are they coping with this? Well, uh, we're trying to be as active as possible. My parents, they host uh, people from other places of the country. Uh, we have quite a few relatives who live uh, near Kiev uh, and uh, near Zhitomir, and these places were heavily bombed as well so they moved here they stayed at my parents place for a while then they moved abroad then my wife and i we host my wife's sister right now then uh, my parents have a few uh, apartments in the mountains so we have people from all around the country living staying there as well uh yeah so pretty much we do everything we can uh, in the area we work in uh, to again to approach the, the day of of victory and how is everybody doing that that you have you know brought in or or given these apartments to just with the idea of not knowing how long it's going to be or if they're going to i mean honestly have a home to come back to in some of these spots uh, everyone is very you know anxious and and sad and terrified to be honest because no one expected to live in an active war and for elderly people who are in their 80s it's pretty much they are living through the same thing for the second time I mean, there there aren't many people who still remember the World War II, but still just a few, and there are, they are just desperate. You can see them on the news, they show them, it's just they can't believe that this is happening again. And, you know, so it's, uh, uh, on one hand, people are scared and, uh, you know, of course, nervous about the war. But on the other hand, I have never seen our, you know, Ukrainians as united as they are right now, because everyone is 
uh, is firm that this is our country, we will win, because even in the places in the east of Ukraine, which used to be considered, you know, to be a pro-Russian, that most of the people are Russian speaking, but even these days, they all say we are Ukrainians, this is Ukraine, and we have to fight for our land and for our right to, to, to exist and to live as a, as a separate independent country. And still, though, as you know, uh, probably three, three and a half million is the latest guess. Uh, Ukrainians have now left the country, Poland, other places. Why did you stay? Uh, well, I wasn't even thinking about staying. My When the war started, my wife was actually in Peru, but she got back. Uh, I mean, this is where we are. This is what we need, what we do. And uh, uh, we're fighting for our country, for our lives, uh, you know, and we're doing everything we can in our play, usual places, uh, you know, to help other people, to help the armed forces, you know, financially, with medications, with different things, with transportation. So just, you know, uh, this is what we what we do and what we want to do, because this is our country. What is life like where you are now? I mean, we, we've heard from people in Lviv saying, look, there's been more air ride sirens. There's been bombs that have gotten closer uh, than in the past couple of weeks. But, you know, over the weekend, people were telling us uh, it was almost like there was a yearning for at least a slice of as normal life as you could get. People were trying to go to cafes or going out or doing something just to feel a bit normal. And then, of course, the sirens would, would happen again at night. But but how often are, are you, you know, snapped back out of or, or into reality if you, if you get that moments of, of, of peace in your day? Uh, well, you know, the air raid sirens is something, you know, we have to live with because we have them uh, a few times a day. Usually sometimes they last for like five hours. But uh, now people are trying to get the business going to keep the economy up because this is really important for the country to pay taxes, to provide services. So although this is difficult, but a lot of people came here from other parts of the country. So uh, cafes have started to open up bakeries, shops, uh, you know, and at least this is helping the country to move the economy and to fund the armed forces so they have uh, the, 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 the resources to win this war. How do you think this ends? Well, Ukraine will win. Uh, it just, you know, we would like to have as, as small number of victims as possible. But unfortunately, you know, it's, uh, it's a, in terms of victims, it's a disaster. Uh, and we're very sorry that so many people have to die in this unnecessary, you know, war. Well, and so many people didn't have to die, just civilian-wise. I mean, that's that's the part that, that hits that hits so hard, right? All of these places that, that should not be targets that are getting targeted. And you see, if we had some better air defense systems, you know, they, we, we could have avoided all this, you know, because then all the missiles could be intercepted and all the aircraft uh, from Russia who take off from Russia or Belarus they 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 would have been intercepted but uh, because we don't have that that's why a lot of civilians are dying because russians would just fly over ukrainian territory and uh, you know drop the bombs on a on a maternity ward or a theater where people were sheltered and that of course brings us to the topic of no fly zones uh because as as you know uh your president uh, repeatedly has asked uh, NATO and the U.S. Uh, as recently as yesterday in his address to the U.S. Congress to have a no-fly zone. And as you also know, uh, NATO and, and the U.S. have steadfastly refused to do that because of the concern 
that it would put NATO countries and the United States into a more direct confrontation with Russia. Uh, does that explanation work for you? Uh, I mean, we're grateful for all the support and help that uh, our partners have been providing us with uh, both military uh, equipment and especially the help to the refugees who are, you know, traveling to all parts of the of the globe right now. So, uh, again, we're really, really grateful for it. But uh, there is an an alternative to a no-fly zone. If NATO is not willing to provide no-fly zone, then there are options of providing fighter jets, anti-aircraft systems. There are different options. But again, uh, we need to uh, be uh, courageous in this uh, at this time, not only for us, because you can see how courageous our Ukrainian uh, servicemen, uh, how the army is courageous and brave. And that's what we are asking also from the international partners to be to have the courage to provide us with certain equipment, certain weapon that we can defend ourselves. All right, Doctor, thank you so much for talking to us and do stay safe. That's Dr. Roman Fischuk. He heads clinical trials there at a hospital in western Ukraine, uh, south of Lviv. There's nothing funny about what's happening in Ukraine right now, but President Zelensky was a comedian before beginning his political career. And now you can watch the satirical show he starred in on Netflix. It's called Servant of the People, and Zelensky plays a high school history teacher who actually becomes president unexpectedly after a video of him complaining about corruption goes viral. This is an Odyssey original. Find us and others on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.